so first, please could you tell us a little about your background and current role? Absolutely. I'm Alberto Espe. I'm at the University of Cincinnati. I am a movement disorders neurologist. Uh, a lot of my time is spent in research outside of the clinics and the research that I do relates to uh, phenomenology of uh, Parkinson's and related disorders as well as uh, clinical trials uh, for Parkinson's and uh, as a result I've been thinking a lot about uh, the way we have been treating patients but importantly the way we think about how we're going to treat patients in the future. Great. And so you've recently authored a couple of papers highlighting the need for a biomarker-driven approach to subtyping Parkinson's disease. Can you tell us a little more about that? Absolutely. Uh, the idea has been brewing for a few years and it essentially boils down to how we plan to tackle the beast of Parkinson's from the standpoint of uh, therapies that truly will make a difference in changing the disease. Uh, the definition of Parkinson's is based on a concept of a variety of uh, features that were first identified by Dr. James Parkinson 200 yeah. years ago. That construct has been very helpful for the development of dopaminergic therapies to treat the symptoms of Parkinson's. Mm. That model, however, has not been helpful to develop therapies that would move up the ant in terms of the ability to modify the disease. So while we're doing a good job with dopaminergic strategies, some non-dopaminergic strategies as well, just kind of addressing the common denominator of Parkinson's, which is dopamine deficiency, we really haven't done a good job with doing service to our patients by treating their disease. Of the over 20 drugs that were ever thought to be helpful or even potentially miraculous for Parkinson's disease, all of them have failed in clinical trials. Mm. So uh, the excuses that we have given ourselves uh, to reassure us to what the causes have been are ranging from the clinical trial designs haven't been very good, the sensitivity of the endpoints that we used to measure change when change occurs may not be the appropriate ones, the populations that we've cho chosen for the studies may have been far advanced beyond a point where we can actually act on the pathology. And then there are two additional reasons that uh, have become uh, the source of these this particular papers you are here uh, bringing to our attention, which is number one, that the uh, drugs were created or validated on animal models that, quote, do not recapitulate the complexity of the human disease, as if we knew what that complexity is. Mm. Uh, and then B, that we don't have biomarkers, and if we only have biomarkers. So with A, it's interesting that we think that the truth that has always been underlying the development of therapeutics for Parkinson's is that which we defined as Parkinson's disease. Mm. So we've created all sorts of reasons why we failed, right? 
preclinical trial design, sensitivity of endpoints, animal models that are not very good enough, if only those animal models were really good at telling us exactly what happens to what we know happens in Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So the one thing we've never poked holes at is our very definition of Parkinson's. When Dr. James Parkinson's defined the set of symptoms that came to be known uh, eponymically as Parkinson's disease, there were technologies, there were no ways of measuring biology. Mm. Now that we have the technologies, now that we can measure biology, we're trying to prove Dr. James Parkinson's was right all along in terms of the ability for him to identify a molecular biological construct called Parkinson's disease. So, uh, if indeed we need biomarkers to advance uh, our therapy, how do, we how, how do we create biomarkers? And that's essentially what these papers are all about. Well, mm. what we have been doing, believe it or not, is that we have three independent biomarker validation cohorts. I've been part of one over the last seven years, my center has been, called the PPMI or the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative that the Michael J. Fox Foundation has kindly uh, sponsored. What we do for this is we have a group of people that we identify as having Parkinson's disease. We call, we said, these are people that meet clinical criteria for Parkinson's. And in the case of the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, these are 420 people, maybe we're down uh, by, by a few, uh, but maybe 400. Then we subdivide them into groups based on what we understand clinically about them. So there are some that have Parkinson's with tremor, some that have Parkinson's without tremor some that have Parkinson's with dementia and some without dementia and so forth. And then we measure a variety of different putative biomarkers and ask the question of all the things that we're measuring in serum, in spinal fluid, in urine, in, in the imaging, which correlate with each of these constructs. And lo and behold, statistically, some things correlate with certain subgroups. Our conclusion is we have determined us that biomarker X is a, bio, is a biomarker of cognitive dysfunction in Parkinson's disease. You can imagine that that would then means that if that's true, number one, that you can use that biomarker to identify individuals consistently in an era mm -hmm. of precision medicine that will actually have that particular uh, phenotype. Not only that, is that not possible because there is a big deal of overlap within studies, but between studies there is not sufficient concordance. Yeah. So these papers are essentially trying to reframe how we think about Parkinson's and perhaps begin to question the very definition of Parkinson's that has been held for 200 years. Perhaps we need to think now in terms of the biology first and looking at biomarkers in a very large, much larger than 400 people in a very large aging population. Yeah. We could then measure the different uh, biological signals that presumably are important, could we uh, look at outlying uh, signals and try to then trace them back to who these people are and who knows who they may be, but it, rather than us defining what we think is the truth clinically, yeah. why don't we let the biological signals dictate what the actual molecular subtypes of neurodegeneration there may be? 
some of this may fall into something that may be indistinguishable to what we currently call Parkinson's disease. Some of them may fall into something that seems to be currently a combination of two diseases, Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. And then some might actually fall into something that perhaps may be best thought of as a thing that currently we can only consider as multiple diseases. Some people mm. who have a postural tremor, some executive dysfunction, arthritis, and melanoma, right? It's still a yeah, the yeah. same biological construct, but that's one phenotype we don't have a name for. We just simply figure these people have different diseases. Maybe not the case. Mm. Sorry I gave you the very long-winded explanation because no, I know that you have questions <laughs> for, for all of this, but, uh, but that's sort of the, that's what is, is the essence of these articles and the idea is only when we will identify the molecular subtypes that make sense on us to act on therapeutically, only then we will find that perhaps we can have a shot at success in neurodegenerative mm -hmm. treatments that will modify disease. Now, here's what we need to accept. We need to accept that the very first success will not apply to any more than perhaps 2% of people who we currently fall under the umbrella of Parkinson's disease. Mm. The idea that uh, we somebody is one one of these days somebody's going to find the cure for Parkinson's disease is by now ridiculous. <laughs> great, it was great to hear the sort of the whole background of mm -hmm. of your work there. So, how do you anticipate looking forward um, that this approach could facilitate a precision approach to treating Parkinson's disease? So, if if we then begin to see that there are certain signals that when we trace them over to people have ultimately a sub generate a subpopulation mm -hmm. that is identifiable, and we then generate a specific molecular subtype of Parkinson's for which there is a therapy that may already be available, then we could do a clinical trial only in those individuals that have that specific uh, mm. molecular abnormality. That's the missing link of all the studies that we've ever done. Uh, mm. I should say that in, that in one of the papers we go over the background of what we have so far done for clinical trials for putative disease-modifying interventions, and of 17 molecules, none have panned out. You would think that by now we should be reassessing mm -hmm. the entire thing much more carefully than we have. But does it mean that all these therapies that we tried before were absolutely worthless? Or could it mean that we never chose the specific subtypes of Parkinson's disease that, that contain the individuals whose molecular biological derangement really created the chance for these molecules to in fact make a change. Instead, they might have been uh, there somewhere, but vastly overwhelmed by individuals mm. with quote-unquote Parkinson's disease for whom the pathology that they had molecularly would mean they are not candidates for that therapy at all. So the few people that might have benefited from it, from, from the, any of this 17 therapies that we now have declared dead for Parkinson's uh, were not ever thought in hindsight as, hey, maybe we need to think about giving this therapy to just those individuals with X mm. specific. So do you think it's likely that we'll see some of these candidates revisited in the future with this new approach? Maybe for those studies uh, for which we've collected biospecimens and actually unfortunately mm. many of them 
did not. Okay. Uh, I, I must tell you that the story of the first therapy developed for cystic fibrosis, a neurodegenerative degenerative disease, not not of not of the brain, uh, but of the pancreas. Uh, it's interesting that uh, this uh, study that was done with one therapy was it failed, but that the, the sponsors are collected by specimens. They determined that there were a few people, not very many, that did amazingly well, mm. and look back and say, what is different about them? So, very good question you're asking me because you're essentially saying, could we then look back and say, of the few that responded, is there anything about them that would make them uh, especially good candidates for the therapy? And lo and behold, there was a mutation that was identified in less than 4% of people that participated, less than 4% of people mm -hmm. that participated in the study. Guess what? The next phase was they just did a clinical trial with people that had only that mutation, again, less than 4% of those who have cystic fibrosis. The study was remarkably positive. The drug became the very first ever treatment for mm -hmm. cystic fibrosis. So the very success in cystic fibrosis did not apply for 100% of people. It only applied to 4%. But those 4% are going to be uh, great. They're going to survive. Yeah. They're going to do well. And so that is what we need to do. Unfortunately, part of what we have been un at the mercy of is this, uh, this idea that one day we're going to cure Parkinson's. We're going to start curing subtypes of what we currently call Parkinson's one at a time, much as other fields have done including cancer, right? I mean, it's silly mm -hmm. for us to say, we're going to cure cancer. Well, we have been curing types of cancer that are molecularly defined by molecularly targeted therapies. Great. So I think yeah, it'll be exciting to see what will happen if we have that sort of shift in the way we look at the disease. So, exactly. Um, so perhaps beyond um, what we've chatted about already or to elaborate on it, what are the key hurdles yet to be overcome before we can see a successful um, precision approach to Parkinson's disease? And how could these like, hurdles be overcome? Sure. The first hurdle is our own intellectual disability in terms <laughs> of... Uh, uh, understanding that Parkinson's really cannot be long-term be thought of as this one multi-headed beast, but rather we need to think about this as a collection of distinct animals, each mm -hmm. of which uh, will have a unique molecular biological derangement that would render those subtypes amenable to therapy that's only going to work for those subtypes and it may not work or be harmful to the next person's mm. Parkinson's or the next subtype's Parkinson's disease. So, so that is an intellectual barrier. If, if we continue to, to, to think of Parkinson's in the way we have, whereby this is a single disease, we're going to fail. The second uh, barrier is that discoveries that are made on families of uh, people that might fall within or slightly beyond the clinical criteria of Parkinson's disease continue to suggest that if we find rare uh, uh, abnormalities never before described, let's say that a family has a specific mutation which leads to uh, an abnormality in the lysosomal uh, function that uh, has never before been uh, reported. If I'm an investigator for the family, I could very easily say we have identified a novel therapeutic target for disease modification in Parkinson's mm -hmm. disease. 
which sounds amazing, but is entirely misleading because I have not identified a novel target for therapeutic development in Parkinson's disease. I yeah. have identified a novel therapeutic target for that specific mutation and that specific molecular derangement. And for people who have that uh, and can be identified through a specific biomarker, mm. and only them. And I don't know how many there are, but it, again, it could be one or 2% of people who are currently subsumed under the broad umbrella of Parkinson's disease. Mm. And so finally, um, looking ahead, where do you hope the field will be in five to 10 years time? In five to 10 years time, we would have completed a very large aging study of people aging with things we now call Parkinson's, with things we now call uh, Alzheimer's disease, all encompassed in a very, very large uh, molecular development study. Not a molecular, not a, not a, uh, uh, and I should say biomarker development, not a biomarker validation of our phenotypes, but instead a biomarker development that will lead to the creation of molecular subtypes. That can only be done through thousands of people, ideally at a population level, that will be studied carefully, both in terms of uh, the variety of different biological elements that we can measure. And, and, and one barrier I should have mentioned before is that the, we don't know if everything we can measure is relevant. Some things that perhaps will be keys to understanding and treating other, other patients might be uh, of elements that we're not yet measuring. Mm. Um, in addition, then all these peoples are going are going to be measured not just with scales, as, but, but with, with technologies, with wearable technologies. And so, and uh, very importantly, I think that they would need to be characterized in terms of the microbiome, mm -hmm. which I know uh, now we know has a variety of different influences on, on, on tissues well beyond the colon, uh, including the brain. So that then, even though we're going to put our clinical labels on each of these individuals, and some of whom will be aging with nothing that we can identify as pathologic. You know, again, thousands of people. What will they need to do within five to ten years is looking at this cohort, but based on what kind of biological abnormalities there are, and looking at those biological abnormalities that are beyond two standard deviations from the mean that may represent something quite meaningful and potentially actionable from a therapeutic perspective. Within a decade, if we invest in the next decade doing a proper aging study for biomarker development to create molecular subtypes of neurodegeneration, what we now call Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and so forth, we will have created the true foundation for the therapeutic development of neuroprotective interventions. And only then we can claim our first victory. Your first victory will apply to one, two, maybe three, ideally four percent of people with Parkinson's. I doubt it. It probably will be applicable to maybe a couple Mm. Uh, two, two, two percent of or so of people that we now refer to as Parkinson's disease, but those two percent will be cured potentially. Great, and that seems like a great place to end. Thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. I'm delighted that uh, we found the time to meet, and I'm also delighted you will be adding this onto your wonderful website. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from NeuroCentral. 
You can find more podcasts plus the latest news, free journal articles, interviews and opinion pieces from across neurology and neuroscience at www.neuro-central.com.